The views and opinions we express in this podcast are our own and do not represent the official position of the Youth in Government Program or the YMCA. All right, welcome to Yag and Recreation, a podcast on which my brother and I get together and talk about Yag and recreation. Every week we pick a topic and we spend some time talking about various aspects of YAG using that topic as a guide. Um, Our hope is that you, our listeners, enjoy pondering the intricacies of YAG with us. And if you're a current student or advisor, uh, maybe you'll get some ideas to take back to your own delegation. The topic this week is voting. Are you ready to, to do this? Let's make a podcast. That sounds good. All right. I would like to call this podcast to order. Um, starting as I always do with an invocation. Um, back in November, uh, when I was watching Vice President-elect Harris give her acceptance speech, um, for the presidential election, uh, she led with a quote from John Lewis that made me realize that I really missed an opportunity when we talked about democracy on that first episode we ever recorded. Mm. Um, can't change that past, uh, so I made my peace with that, but I did want to bring it up because I've read that article that Mr. Lewis wrote, um, which was published in the New York Times shortly after his passing, and it's well worth anyone's time to go find and read. Um, I was particularly struck by the paragraph that immediately follows the quote that Harris used. Uh, it says, Ordinary people with extraordinary vision can redeem the soul of America by getting in what I call good trouble necessary trouble. Voting and participating in the democratic process are key. The vote is the most powerful, non-violent change agent you have in a democratic society. You must use it because it is not guaranteed. You can lose it. I think we see proof of this truth, that voting is powerful, um, because more people than ever voted in this last election cycle. Um, And in many states, several contests are really close, not just for the presidential election, but for seats in Congress and state legislatures and smaller municipalities. Um, We're still, at the time of this recording, awaiting results of the Senate race in Georgia, Mm -hmm. which is ultimately going to determine which party has a majority in that chamber. Mm -hmm. Um, Every person's vote matters, even when the races aren't close. Um, Seeing how people vote can help us understand the demographics of where we live and how people hope to be served by their elected leadership. Um, This whole process of referring to states and cities as blue and red is really doesn't tell us the whole story. Um, I like to think of those, all those places as like purple or swirly, bunch of colors. Um, (laughs) Your geographical location does not decide how you're going to vote. You get to decide. Um, And if you don't like what's happening, you can make a difference by voting and encouraging people around you to vote. Um, And even if you do like the decisions that are being made, you can affirm them by participating in the vote. So I want to encourage everyone out there, whether you're old enough or not, when an election comes, whether it's a primary or a special election or a general election, you do what you can to be involved. Make sure your family and your friends and your neighbors know about the election. Help them find info about candidates. Let them know how to register. Um, You can even check out if there are opportunities to volunteer. And with that in mind, I want to make sure everyone's aware that the primary for the 2021 general election in Washington state is August 3rd. Um, But you can be active right now by making sure you're registered at your current address or that your parents or siblings or friends or neighbors are if you're not old enough to vote. And you can even register as young as 16, um, even though you cannot vote till you're 18. 
that may be the earliest reminder I've <laughs> ever been given for an off-year primary election, and I just want to commend you on your your civic responsibility. That is top-notch. Well, you know, if I don't mark my calendar, I can forget. Totally. And these are the elections it is easiest to skip or easiest to um, sort of ignore or decide you don't know enough to vote. Um, and so it is important to remember that there are ways of there are ways of being engaged. I, I, I like that reminder, and I like that um, call to action. That's great. Thank you. Awesome. Well, um, we'll move right along to old business. Um, and listening back uh, several weeks ago now, I discovered I forgot to include eligibility requirements for the committee leadership roles uh, in episode five. And so to, to be a committee leader, you have to be 10th through 12th grade and run at the district level for a position. Um, and I believe you have to have experience in our program to run for those roles. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you have any old business, James? In my deep dive on the caring episode, um, it turned out I was about to be right about something and I corrected myself because I assumed I was wrong and it turned out I was wrong to catch myself. Uh, <laughs> I told a story about um, Speaker Alex Randall supporting um, a young, uh, young woman who was presenting a bill um, where she had been taking some pretty kind of tough, maybe too intense criticism from the room. Um, and in my head at the time, I was thinking, wasn't it a bill about like school bullying or something? But I decided that that was just, it was impossible that that was what it was because it would have been too kind of poetic for that to be the subject of debate but luckily anna you save everything um I do. everything everything yeah at least and uh you determined with the bill book from that year's mock ledge it was in fact a bill about school bullying and so mm -hmm. uh, a reminder that the duty to express care is even higher when we think the subject might be one about which people have um maybe tender or or um painful kind of memories and feelings and experiences so it, i i should have stuck to my guns though i should have said oh no it's it was a bill about bullying but i i i backed talk backtracked yeah. in that episode and i shouldn't have yeah. yeah go with your guts okay um speaking of the caring episode um a listener sent in a picture um of their so, grandfather's name tag from the so, third session of washington state youth ledge so wonderful um and back then it was a pin-style name badge with an insert, just like it was when we were teenagers. Wow. Um, the name and delegation were clearly typed onto the insert using a typewriter, which means some person or several had to individually feed little name tag inserts into a typewriter manually and line up the name and delegation. So uh, lots of caring right there. Mm. No kidding. I know. Thank you. Thank you, listener. Emily. Yes. Yes. Thanks, Emily. All right, we'll move right along to new business. Um, we'll lead off as we typically do with a deep dive by James. Um, so this is a time where I allow James to have five uninterrupted minutes to talk about a subject of his choosing that relates to our topic, which today is voting. Thank you. Take it away. Thank you. The subject I'll just reflect on a little and suggest a uh, I think a conversation topic for our for our delegations and our delegates um, is how we conduct the vote, um, the the pairing or the 
the opposition of first-past-the-post elections, which is how we conduct elections in this country generally, and how youth in government currently conducts its elections, and ranked choice voting, where people cast ballots um, that can sort of move around a little bit. Um, so just as a reminder, the a first-past-the-post election just means that of however many candidates are running, whoever has the most votes wins, even if that person didn't receive anywhere close to a majority of the votes being cast, if there were four or five candidates, let's say. Um, the person who got the most votes might only have 24% of the vote. Uh, the There are certainly advantages to this system of election. It's very easy to administer. It's easy to decide that you've gotten a winner. Um, there are some downsides too, of course. Um, people talk about it a lot. Um, in society, people who are dissatisfied with one of the two major political parties that they might otherwise sort of vote for, they're on that side of issues politically. Um, you're often told, well, you can't vote for somebody else because you're wasting your vote or you're throwing your vote away. And that's a fair description of the way the system works right now. Um, if uh, voters on the left decide not to vote for the Democrat, it's pretty easy for a Republican to be first past the post. And the same goes if voters on the right um, don't support a Republican. I mean, youth in government elections, we've had the same um, somewhat negative history with first-past-the-post elections. Um, with us, it's, it's fairly easy for there to be pretty big discrepancies um, between the sizes of districts um, and the number of delegates in each district. And if at least many or most voters from each district choose to support their candidate, in a first-past-the-post election, it's pretty easy for a large district to regularly win, um, even if, even though their candidate might have much less than a majority of the support statewide. Um, ranked choice voting is designed to solve this problem, um, and I, in five minutes I can't get into the different systems. Um, elections nerds, um, and I say that with love in my heart, elections nerds could get really precise with us about all the varying ups and downs of the systems. But I think the the question I would pose to you as listeners and that I think you could pose to your students or your delegation um, is to say, well, what's an election for? Like, if somebody gets elected, let's say there's five candidates for an office and somebody gets elected with 25% of the vote, even though most people would have preferred one of the other candidates, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Um changing to a different system of election where let's say someone ranks all of those five names and if your top choice gets the fewest votes then your ballot gets shifted over to somebody else you know that could start changing the outcomes of elections um it might be a lot slower it might be a lot less efficient there might be a lot more arguments about how to vote properly or people might get confused and decide simply not to participate um, which is what you were talking about earlier anna um, mm -hmm. is that price worth it? If we make voting more complicated, but we create outcomes that encourage, say, people from minority parties or districts, in the case of youth and government elections, um, you know, is, is that a trade-off worth making? I think it's worth talking about to, to remind our students that the system we have right now isn't inevitable. It's not the only system. You and I are going to talk I think a little later in this episode about the system we used to have 
um, mm -hmm. youth in government when you and I were students, um, used a ranked ballot um, for some of its elections. Um, we tested ranked voting again in the, I think, mid to late 2000s when we had a major officer who was particularly passionate about it. Um, I really think we should again. Um, if the youth legislature is designed to test ideas and to demonstrate the worth of really good ideas to um, adults in our society, I think it would be great for us to do that kind of thing. And I think there are opportunities, not just at the state level, but at the district level, um, where systems like the single transferable vote, I think it works really well in multi-seat elections. We don't have many of those um, on the state and federal level, but inside districts, votes for committee leadership often are sort of multi-seat elections. Um, that's something that if people want to nerd out about it, they should write to us. I would gladly nerd out back with them about how to try this. Um, but I think we should. And I think we should at least have conversations about why it could be a good idea to try some things and to ask ourselves what the aim of an election is. And those are my thoughts this week. Thank you very much. That's lovely. Thank you. You gave me a really good segue to Anna's dorky fun. I'm pleased. Yes. Um, this week, Anna's dorky fun is YAG elections history. Because um, <laughs> I like things like that. Uh, a couple <laughs> years back uh, at a district event for one of the districts I support, I was trying with some fellow advisors who were past participants to remember who served as major officer in a certain role a few years back. And it led us to spend a few hours at that event, carefully compiling a Google spreadsheet of all the <laughs> names we could remember of um, major officers. Uh, and so, and then I kept at it after the event because I cannot stand to have empty holes on a spreadsheet. <laughs> um, and so after uh, some discussion with you, I think James um, mm -hmm. and some other people, and finally, uh, diving into my bill books on my shelf i've compiled a history that goes back to 1996 95 somewhere around there mm -hmm. um and i have a list of all the governors uh except for that one year where we apparently didn't keep any records as to who was governor mm -hmm. um but uh super fun to i think have a resource like that to look back when i'm trying to remember who was governor that year or who was postmaster general um, and James, you turned that into an app for us, mm -hmm. um, which is not publicly released. But if anybody is really <laughs> dying to have access to an app-based list of past Washington major officers and youth ledge, um, you can let us know. Yes. Um, so YAG history, though, uh, youth ledge elections history. When we began as delegates um, in the mid-90s, there were six districts. One through four were Western Washington and five and six were Eastern Washington. And each district would select a single candidate for major officer. Um, and I, I, you can correct me if I'm wrong with this history, James. Mm -hmm. Those candidates were selected at our district event and then traveled to Olympia in like March mm -hmm. to participate in a candidate panel that TVW would film. It was actually, as I recall, Bates Technical College. Um, oh. K KBTC okay. was filming them. This is in the era <gasps> where TVW is still in its either infancy or, or pre-TVW. Oh, okay. Cool. So, um, that at any rate, a VHS tape would be produced, mm -hmm. and I think probably a few VHS tapes that mm -hmm. would be mailed around the state. And so your delegation would get an envelope in the mail with a VHS tape and ballots, and you would take a delegation meeting to watch the VHS tape, mm -hmm. and it would be the panel, and then you would get to vote. And uh, did we rank the top three out of six? I, that sounds right to me. 
I think we picked our top three choices and then mm -hmm. we would mail our ballots to the state office mm -hmm. in a big envelope and we would mail the video to the next delegation on the list like a chain letter. Mm -hmm. um, and then after everybody had watched the video and all the votes had been mailed in, um, the state office would compile the results. The topmost vote recipient would be elected to serve in the upcoming session as governor. Um, second place was lieutenant governor, then speaker, president pro tem, speaker pro tem, and sixth place was secretary of state. Mm -hmm. um, the governor would get to attend the National Youth Governors Conference after they served as governor. And as far as I know, we were the only states to do that. Mm -hmm. um, so that was the process when we were young. And I, if I can just add briefly, please do. It, it was never clear to me, I don't know if it's since been clearer to you, how the counting worked like we would Not rank clear. yeah we would rank three names but i don't know if it was clear to us if like the top person on your ranking did they get three points and the next were they weighted two? votes or, or not yeah or is it that if the first person did they like eliminate candidates and like was it a transferable vote i don't think we <laughs> ever knew transparency was not a thing back then alas we just accepted the results yes. um <laughs> at any rate uh we all knew that whoever was secretary of state came in last place, which was <sighs> depressing, yeah. but also, you know, they got to be a leader. Mm -hmm. um, some cool things that I think we don't have anymore that were great about that was that every district had a leader. Mm -hmm. They had someone that their teens could look to and say like, yeah, I want to, I want to do that. That's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so in 2002, we changed our elections process and we elected all the MOs a year in advance. So 2002 was super weird. Because each district elected a major office candidate to serve in the upcoming session. And they did the filming of the panel thing. And we voted on them to serve. But we also, every district, elected major office candidates to serve for the following year. Mm -hmm. um, so 2002 is probably a year we're going to spend a whole episode talking about at mm -hmm. some point. Mm -hmm. um, but so, the, um, so then each district got to nominate a candidate for each of the roles. And then they ran at the state at our session and mm -hmm. then that year the youth governor who was elected for to serve in 2002 wasn't allowed to attend the youth governor's conference because we had to send the 2003 youth governor and the conf the governor's conference wouldn't let us send both of them mm -hmm. but, although but given whatever. the events of 2002 that yeah, would have been might very that anyway, would have been very right? confusing yeah. we'll talk about um, it in a different episode <laughs> so uh with shifting to electing a year in advance um, and opening up each position to have a candidate from each district, we also redistricted around the state down to four districts, I think, at that same time. I'm not exactly sure how that worked mm -hmm. um, because we needed to have only we only had four candidates. I, I can't even remember, mm -hmm. but um, we ended up adding some leadership positions so that every position would have a runner up position that was also awarded. So governor was a position to run for and the runner up was AG. Mm -hmm. um, director of elections was added as a runner up to secretary of state. Mm -hmm. And then the two presiding officer positions, the lieutenant governor and the speaker of the house each had a pro tem to, as a runner up. Mm -hmm. So we did that in 2002. Um, and the following year we added in electing leaders for the lobbyist press and pages a year in advance. And they would serve as what we called major officers. Um, but they held their own small elections for those roles and they continue to do so. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, so uh, that shift happened, and um, 
For several years after, there was lots of discussion how to improve the system because some teens who wanted to run for AG couldn't because they had to run for governor and hope they came in second. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, the uh, teens felt like the AG and the governor were really vastly different types of roles. And the same thing for director of elections and secretary of state. Mm-hmm. That somebody who wanted to be one of those roles probably didn't want the other one necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, that was at a time when we had the program committee full of these major officers who had been elected to serve. And we would have these long discussions where they would vote to try and pull those roles apart. Mm-hmm. And, and there, were, years, there were students writing resolutions and things like there was at yes. least some legislative there was conversation about this. Among all students, not yes. just the major officers, but yes. the major officers having a vote on that program committee were the ones making these decisions totally. along with adults on the committee. Totally agree. Um, and so at some point we did pull those apart. And so we would have a, each district could have a candidate for governor, AG, lieutenant governor, speaker of the house, secretary of state, and director of elections. Mm-hmm. Um, less successful with the director of elections being split out. Um, the AG has been a real success though. Yes. Um, it's worked really well. Um, but we've rarely had candidates for director of elections. Like, Hardly ever would anyone want to run for that. And so Mm -hmm. we ended up rolling it back in as a runner-up to the Secretary of State. And then ultimately, it's now an appointed position, Mm -hmm. um, which we'll talk about a little later, actually. Um, And so that's kind of where we're at right now. We've added districts back in. We're back up to six districts. Um, They are not the same six districts that existed when you and I were teenagers. Mm -hmm. Um. And sometimes districts don't have any candidates. Um, Sometimes we don't have enough candidates for the roles available. Like sometimes we only have one candidate for Speaker of the House. Mm -hmm. Um, And we've had to like fill in gaps in weird ways. And um, it can be really interesting. I think the thing that I've noticed over the last several years is that we've had less interest in people running. Yes. Um, And I don't know what that's about. I don't know if um, young people are too busy um, and it's a too much responsibility or if we don't offer enough information about those roles and how to do them. It's a really good question. I, um, I mean, I think that there is a separate episode for us to make. We're talking about voting elections are closely tied with voting, but really there's, I think there's a whole separate episode to make about elections because one of the things that has been true since the shift in 2002 is that, um, students have to campaign um, mm. And the students I've known, both the successful and unsuccessful major officer candidates, just universally lament campaigning, feeling like it just okay. sucks away so much time and energy from their ability to just enjoy whatever it is they're doing at Youth Ledge that year, that it become okay. it's it's become a bigger and bigger point of conversation where they say I I don't they wouldn't mind giving a speech. They wouldn't mind serving in a major officer role, but often they find the the prospect of feeling like they're campaigning and they have to be on for, you know, 48 hours or whatever at Youth Ledge. That's what sort of dissuades them. And so I, I wonder if that's that, interesting. if over the years, as campaigns have gotten more and more elaborate, you know, people come up with videos and giveaways and all well, sorts of different things. You know, access to technology is a real, yeah. there's been a big shift between 2002 and today. Like no For one sure. had Facebook. Right. People didn't carry around cameras in their pockets that were connected to the internet. Right. Um, there was no Twitter, no Instagram, no mm-hmm. Snapchat. Mm-hmm. Like 
It, the ways that people can connect with each other now are so vast that campaigning probably does feel way more overwhelming than handing out flyers and buttons. Exactly. In 2002, it wouldn't have made any sense to like film a campaign ad, whereas yeah, no one would have watched it. Students absolutely can do that now, and so yeah. it's a uh, well. And how would you have even distributed it? I I just yeah. think there have been some changes that are relevant. But you're right; it's a really interesting problem, and it's one you and I should talk about more. Yeah. Yeah, maybe another time. Yeah. People, our listeners can tell us if they'd like to hear us talk more about that. <laughs> if they'd like to hear us talk about anything, we'd be glad That's to hear. That's true. Anything. <laughs> we love to hear from people. All right. Well, um, with that done, we'll move right along to our elections roundup. Yeah. So, yeah, I guess that maybe this episode isn't so much about voting as it is about elections, because we're going to talk about the director of elections. I think they're connected. <laughs> they are. They're totally connected. Um, Director of Elections uh, serves as the chair of the Fair Elections Commission, which mm-hmm. enacts and publishes the rules for campaigning for major office. Yes. They implement and enforce the rules for campaigning for major officer candidates and directly oversee and run the election for major officers for the following year. They prepare and distribute the voters' pamphlet prior to the election of major officers, and they also perform other assignments as requested by the Secretary of State. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's um it's an interesting role. Um it was as you just mentioned, it was a major officer position for quite a long time. In fact, it it emerged, you know, the need for it emerged in 2002 and immediately like in its uh, as it was created, it was created as a major officer position and it's never quite fit. Um yeah. the work demanded for a director of elections feels not quite as um high um octane as the as many of the other major offices but it's also more work than just being elected to serve in one of our more um our sort of middle level leadership positions that are elected at a district level there's often been a lot of confusion about how closely connected it is to the secretary of state or not. Like, do you work for the secretary or are you kind of your own thing? Mm -hmm. Um, But the weird thing is there's this confusion around the role, but also it's a super meaningful role. Um, And you could argue it's one of the most meaningful leadership roles we have because a lot of the other stuff we do, it matters, but it doesn't, change anything in the real world right whether we pass a particular bill or not almost never affects um what happens in the world um the outcomes of these elections literally do like assign people meaningful work you know in the case of the governor's race it adds Mm -hmm. a student to our board and someone who's going to travel to the nation's capital to represent our state i mean you know it's this is big stuff yeah. So it's kind of funny that it's this role that we've never quite gotten a good handle on as a program. Um, and and I think in part we've never had a good handle on it because there are, a, there are a lot of different ways to approach the role and it requires a lot of different skills. The director of elections, they're very busy behind the scenes, but then also they have like a huge amount of public speaking. Mm-hmm. They have to be ready to present candidates and interact with people mm-hmm. and announce election results and i don't know and it's part of the challenge of it administratively is uh, it's just sort of sort of weirdly out of sync with the work everyone else is doing everyone else is doing work related to a single 
thing, right? This organic bill process, right? Bills mm-hmm. coming up in chambers and moving back and forth and the AGs and the governors engaging with it. And even like um, the sort of support areas like the press and the lobbyists are really closely focused on that. The director of elections doesn't care at all what bills are being passed. And instead... Well, like, they they're... might care, but it's not part of their job. <laughs> right. Sorry. Professionally, <laughs> right? They're, <laughs> right. They're, what they need to focus on And it happens at funny times on Wednesday when everyone's arriving and trying to figure out where their committee is and what, you know, where their, when their bill is going to come up. The director of elections is trying to collect campaign budgets and review materials and find their fair elections commissioners. And, and the timing of all of those things has always felt chaotic, even in the hands of well-prepared directors of elections. And not mm-hmm. not every director of elections has been well prepared. I hope that's not controversial to say. I don't think so. I think, I mean, you know. It, it's like anything in life. <laughs> teens come in with some background knowledge or sure. none. I mean, a lot of it depends on if their advisor knows how right. to tell them what's going on. Right. Uh, so I think part of the challenge of it has been that it's it's work that when you're busy and what you're busy doing is often really just sort of out of sync with what everyone else is thinking about. Yes. But again, what you're doing is also super important. All those people really do care about what you're doing. They're just not thinking about it right now. So it's Yes. Well, I mean, you have to handle a lot of, like, challenging relationships. Oh, yeah confidential information mm-hmm. um you have to operate transparently but also kind of secretively I, ethically yeah. <laughs> and like if somebody breaks a rule you have to figure out how to manage that without like mm-hmm. hurting their feelings but mm-hmm. also without being unfair to the people who didn't break the rules mm-hmm. um and some some does can be real sticklers <laughs> like well and aggressively his- enforcing the rules like to the word and historically we we don't have many tools in their toolbox they can they can remove someone from the race which is a huge outcome yes or if they catch something early enough they can deny someone the right to speak at whatever candidate speaking event we've got right but although there are other things we theoretically could do we've never really explored what other kinds of consequences or sanctions we can work with and and I think that that's been frustrating for a lot and of DOEs. With, with the way that it's currently set up, like the director of elections is going to apply to be that role and get mm-hmm. appointed by the secretary of state. Mm-hmm. And that can take some time depending on the year mm-hmm. um, and depending on the secretary of state and like how everything goes. And so sometimes they are going to roll in like in March mm-hmm. and be handed a set of rules they didn't create, but that are now the rules everyone thinks they're operating under. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that can be really challenging because they do have to enforce our standard rules, even if they don't agree with them. So the director of elections as a role that um, has no speaking privileges and to be eligible, you have to be currently in 10th, 11th or 12th grade for the year. And you have to have a year of experience at session mm-hmm. and you cannot be a candidate for any of the major office positions. Um, you're, you apply and you're appointed by the secretary of state and uh, director of elections can't be from the same district as the secretary of state unless there are no other applicants. And once appointed, they do have some pre-session work, like what I talked about with the campaign rules and things like that. And they do attend leadership training. Mm-hmm. 
And that's the director of elections. And now we'll move along to the other position we're going to cover tonight, uh, which is the fair elections commissioners, which is not, uh, it's one of the, what we call them rotating positions, except it doesn't rotate. Mm-hmm. Every district <laughs> gets to elect a fair elections commissioner every year. Mm-hmm. Um, so the fair elections commissioners participate in the development of the rules and regulations for the youth legislature major officer election. They implement and administer the rules during the youth legislature session and the election under the supervision of the director of elections. They staff polling sites during the election and ensure the security of the process and the ballots. They also have other elections duties as requested by the director of elections. Mm -hmm. Um, And so this this one's a weird one. It's the only part time role we have in our program. Mm -hmm. Um, Delegates who serve as an FEC also hold typically hold a standard role in our program, uh, a legislator, a lobbyist, press, or page, probably. Um, they're often overlooked at district elections, um, and I'm not sure why that is, because uh, I haven't been to all the different district events, but um, it's a difficult one to fill. But it's really essential that we have someone from every district involved in this elections process to maintain that transparency and, like, you know, the like the optics of, like, an ethical and fair elections process. Mm-hmm. Um, and also like the director of elections, this um, position really does require the ability to maintain confidentiality, which can be challenging for some people when I don't know that they actually know the results of the election in advance of them being announced, but sometimes it I can believe... be tempting to pretend they know and talk about it and it can hurt feelings. So <laughs> I believe that depending on what equipment we use to tally and gather the vote and how the director of elections and the elections pal has run it i think there have been years when for an individual race uh, a commissioner might know the outcome but i think you're right that often they don't know any of the outcomes yeah so i don't know i mean i think like it can be a challenging role if you have a very gregarious young person who Mm -hmm. likes to you know be in the know and share that knowledge Mm -hmm. um this would be a tough fit for them Mm mm-hmm it would. Um, do we want to get into the confusion around? This? Oh, yeah. So in researching um, the information to share on this episode, James and I have discovered that um, we aren't exactly sure what the eligibility requirements are for this role. Um, <laughs> because you and I each I, think something different and the advisor's handbook agrees with neither of us neither of nor us. reality. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. No. So um, in the advisor handbook that if you're an advisor right now, you have access to, um, don't look at that one for fair elections commissioner. <laughs> it's it's ridiculous. Um, I don't I think something got copied and pasted there incorrectly. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I am under the impression that this is a role that you need to be in 10th through 12th grade and have experience uh, at session. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And that this is a role that does not attend leadership training. Um, James, what did you think the requirements were? I, I mean, the way that I have in practice operated is that it is a role that anyone can hold, that you you can hold whatever other role you've got, and then you can be a fair elections commissioner. Since it requires no specialized knowledge of the program, it, all it asks is that you be faithful and ethical. Right. Um, yeah, I don't know if if there's any expectation that people not hold other leadership positions in addition to this. Um, it would be a challenging role. Mm-hmm. Um, if, for instance, if you were like the lieutenant governor 
to also be a fair elections commissioner. You wouldn't have time to do both. I agree. In practice, um, I I do recall there being some FEC members who also had elected offices. And, and in my memory, it has been a source of some frustration. Like it was a, well, a reading clerk or something like that. And so we were shorthanded on the rostrum all morning kind of thing. I think that that was a situation where we were trolling for a fair elections commissioners I'm at leadership sure training. Right. I'm sure you're right. Um, which is why it's, I think it's important that each district provide a fair elections commissioner from the election. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I know that, I mean, you don't, you can't force somebody to do something, but I think it can be a really cool role, especially if it is open to younger and newer delegates, mm-hmm. as long as they understand the responsibility and the requirements. Um, mm-hmm. I think a new ninth grader would totally be successful. Um, it, it doesn't require that much of you other than to understand the rules, mm-hmm. be willing to enforce them and know how to hand out pencils. <laughs> it, I will say in my experience, um, most of our FEC members from my district um, slash delegation uh, have been new and younger. And it's always been a good thing for them. Um, it's been a chance for them to connect with other people from around the state and so it's been nice um, for a student who maybe would love to make those connections but doesn't necessarily know how Um, and I think if you've got an advisor who's able to sort of prepare you and communicate about like what this really means yeah I think it can be a I think it can be a really positive experience it is a slightly funny role I guess I'll just say because this needs to be someone who is okay with getting up and leaving whatever their other assignment is, right? If they're a member mm. of the House, let's say, they need to be someone who is fine with the fact that they're going to miss House debate for, you know, several hours. All of Friday, basically, right. yeah. But they also need to be someone who is serious about commitments they make, right? Because they need to be really conscientious in their role as FEC. So it, it does require someone who has that sort of level of seriousness, combined with an ability to understand that sort of priority setting that it's okay for one lobbyist to be away from the lobbyist firm for a few hours because they are their district's you know representative for a fair and just election so it's it it can be a little bit of a, a tricky personality type sometimes to find but i've generally found that we have a lot of kids like that in youth and government who are able to make that kind of with that in mind you'd want to avoid a a student who has trouble over promising. Yes. Um, like if you're a lobbyist and you commit to doing a bunch of stuff and then you suddenly realize you have to staff the polls for four hours and you leave your lobbyists totally. and then you feel stressed out because you are trying to make handbills while you're handing out ballots. Like, <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, it is, it is, I don't know. I think it is a tough fit, but it's also a job that a lot of different people could be really successful at. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, that, do you feel as though we've covered that? I do awesome um well that's all we have planned for this episode um so we'll move right along to uh, any announcements um do you have any announcements to make not in particular uh should i mention next week or is that you do you know what's coming next week we're going to talk about bills and bill drafting which is a fun topic and one we haven't yet addressed in this podcast i know i'm hoping you'll teach me how to write a bill (laughs) i'm hoping i'll teach me to write a bill (laughs) awesome well um if anyone out there who's listening has any questions you'd like us to answer or uh, suggestions for other topics for episodes 
um, or even a picture you'd like to share with us or a story you'd like to tell us, everything can be sent to our email, yagandrecreation at gmail.com. Um, and with that, I will entertain a motion to adjourn this podcast. I so move. Awesome. Do I have a second? Second. Delightful. All those in favor, please say aye. Uh, aye. All opposed? No one. Awesome. Okay, well, that motion passes, and we'll adjourn for this week. Thank you for listening to this episode of Yag and Recreation, an Up Till 2 Productions podcast. Yag and Recreation is co-written and co-hosted by my sister, Anna Hazen, and by me, James Rosenzweig, and edited solely by the multi-talented Anna Hazen. Thanks also go to Tainum Fotheringo, our program and coolness consultant, to Jeff Hazen for composing and recording our introductory music and providing on-call technical support, and to Ben and Sam Hazen for additional incidental music and fully artist work. We'll see you next week. And that's all for today.